Welcome to the March 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dolgan. This month, how virtual reality is adding a new dimension to neurological studies of the brain. While we're looking at these anatomical structures in 3D, we can add additional dimensions of data and interactively visualize that in this type of environment. Using stem cells to turn the clock back on muscle aging. The whole approach could work as a stem cell therapy by rejuvenating the population ex vivo, outside of the body. Plus, sticking it to sepsis and VIP for HIV. But first, a new form of staph ID. Superbugs are on the rise, and our ability to contain these pathogenic bacteria is seriously hampered by delays in diagnosis. Currently, definitive diagnoses can only be obtained by taking a patient biopsy and culturing the tissue in the laboratory. This, says James McNamara, is a slow and laborious process. It takes a lot of time, uh, generally 24 hours or more, um, often several days, to really determine if there's bacteria there. McNamara is a scientist at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. In the March issue of Nature Medicine, he and his colleagues describe a new rapid technique for infectious disease diagnostics. Their non-invasive imaging probe can pinpoint infections and identify the causative bacterial species in less than an hour. As a proof of principle, McNamara's team focused on one particularly common but nasty species. The, the one that we've uh, characterized in this work is a probe that's specific for uh, Staph aureus, which is one of the most problematic bacteria that causes these types of infections. The probe consists of three main parts. First, there's a fluorophore. That's basically a kind of chemical compound that can release light when activated. Then there's a quencher molecule. This quencher blocks the light emitted by the fluorophore. In between the quencher and the fluorophore is a stretch of oligonucleotides holding the whole probe together. There are enzymes known as nucleases that can cut up the oligonucleotide linker. However, the whole probe has been designed so that only nucleases released by Staph aureus can successfully slice and dice the construct. So without the bacteria, the three parts all stay connected, the quencher cancels out the fluorophore, and the probe is effectively in the off position... But if the, the oligonucleotides cleave by a nuclease, then the quencher will diffuse away and the fluorophore becomes uh, fluorescent. That, says McNamara, should happen wherever Staph aureus is found in the body. So then there would be a local fluorescence increase where, where we have infections. For now, the technology has only been engineered for Staph aureus. But with the few modifications to the oligonucleotide sequence, it should be adaptable to almost any pathogen species. Again, here's James McNamara. We have a platform in which we can develop probes for a variety of different bacteria that would be specific for the bacterial species because we can tailor the probes to be specifically digested by the target nuclease of interest. You can read more about James McNamara's diagnostic probe at nature.com slash naturemedicine. Shifting from diagnosis to treatment, we turn our attention now to sepsis a disease that is often caused by Staph aureus and other deadly pathogens. Nature Medicine News intern Nicolette Ziliat has a story. Sepsis is a potentially deadly inflammatory response that occurs in response to infection and is one of the leading causes of death in hospitals. Antibiotics can help to control the infections that lead to sepsis, 
but there are no effective treatments to combat the inflammation that results. Now, a team at Rutgers University New Jersey Medical School report in this month's issue of Nature Medicine that they can protect mice against sepsis using a technique known as electroacupuncture, a form of acupuncture that uses needles to electrically stimulate nerves. The team found that electroacupuncture applied to the sciatic and vagus nerves, the stimulation of which has previously been shown to reduce inflammation, rescued mice from sepsis by inducing the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine from the adrenal glands that sit at the top of the kidneys. What's more, the authors show that a blood pressure drug called phenaldopam, which specifically binds to dopamine type 1 receptors, mimics the effects of electroacupuncture and also protects mice from potentially deadly inflammation. These results all point to dopamine receptor as a therapeutic target for sepsis, says study author Luis Uloa, who explains why finding effective therapies for sepsis has proven so difficult. The problem is that sepsis is not only an infection, but also an inflammatory response that it once causing multiple organ failure. So many people in sepsis, they don't die because of the infection. That was the, the original cause. Most of the people die because they have an overwhelming inflammatory response. So obviously, sepsis is a clinical challenge and it's also a scientific challenge because there is no treatment approved by the FDA for sepsis. So what led you to want to see whether electroacupuncture might be effective in treating sepsis? Well, actually, we started the other way around. We have been studying for the last 10 years how the nervous system controls the immune system. But one of the problems we have is that all the experimental approach, it was uh, required surgery. You had to open the animal, you had to do the surgery to isolate the nerve, and then you do electrical stimulation of the nerve. That strategy is very good to study the mechanism, but obviously have a clinical limitations. So we were looking for means and ways to do the same without the surgery because that was a major problem from a clinical perspective. How effective was electroacupuncture in treating sepsis? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, it's pretty fascinating when you come to think about that. You know, uh, electroacupuncture and acupuncture have been used for millions of people for thousands of years. But sometimes people thinking that it's like a pseudoscience because, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. The problem is that we didn't know the mechanism. So I think one of the beauty of our article is that we identified that electroacupuncture can control the immune system by producing catecholamines in the adrenal gland, and uh, specifically dopamine. So by knowing the mechanism, what we are being able to do is to develop a pharmacological strategy that can be used in the clinical settings. So now we have been using a specific agony for the receptor type 1. And in this case, we were successful to rescue the animal. And this is also a very important uh, point. We started the treatment not before the animal are sick. We make the animal sick. We waited one day with 10% of the animals they are about to die, and then we started the treatment. So this is the first time, to my knowledge, that phenaldopan is used to rescue animals that they are already sick. Is this something that you think you could try in humans, or what would be the, the hurdles that you would need to clear before you could try this in humans? Well, I think it's always the same. You have to really understand the mechanisms to, before going to clinical trials. I think this is giving us a major clue 
this is giving us, you know, a good direction. And actually, you know, there are some preliminary clinical trials, principle of proof, that are suggesting we are in the right direction. Nicolette there speaking with Luis Uloa. Still to come, muscling in on stem cell aging. But first, let's go spelunking down into a cave, a type of 3D visualization laboratory. In the latest issue of Nature Medicine, Australian science writer Diani Lewis visits one of these caves in Melbourne to investigate how, or even if, this kind of facility is advancing biomedicine. One proponent of the technology is Olu Ajalori. He's a neuropsychiatrist at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and he's been using one of these caves to study the neurocircuitry behind depression. Ajalori describes his experience. So it's basically a huge uh, semicircle, basically. Actually, it's, it's a little bit larger than a semicircle of high-resolution monitors. Um, I believe there are 72 displays in total. And when you walk into the, into the middle of that circle, your entire peripheral vision is taken up by the display. Um, and so it's completely immersive, and you're completely surrounded by what you're looking at. And in your case, the data that you're putting on those screens is uh, diffusion tensor images taken from MRIs of people with depression. Yeah, so one of the things we're trying to, to look at are um, to be able to visualize these fibers in three dimensions and see them up close so that we may appreciate possible differences that are difficult to detect on a regular 2D screen. Now, I don't doubt that it looks really, really cool. But are you really seeing different patterns by going into this multi-million dollar facility that you couldn't just do on a desktop with a very large screen or maybe a couple screens? That's a very good question. And at this stage, we don't know because our work is actually very preliminary. So we actually haven't yet visualized group differences. Um, so we just took a sample from a couple healthy controls just to see if we can actually do it first just to actually visualize this type of data in this environment. So the next step is then to look at group differences and to see if we see things above and beyond what we see with our traditional methods of analysis. Given the time that you've spent thus far in in the cave, what do you anticipate that you're going to see ultimately by using virtual reality? I think the way to to think about it, if you think about uh, Google Maps, right, you have the regular default view that comes up that's just a map, but then you can overlay on that um, a terrain, traffic information, and then you can do street view where you see things in 3D. And that street view is very different than the 2D uh, default map view. And we're hoping to do the same thing with brain mapping, in that we would not just take the tractography data that you've seen, but we could also overlay group difference statistical data on top of that. We could overlay genetic data on top of that. So while we're looking at these anatomical structures in 3D, we can add additional dimensions of data and interactively visualize that in this type of environment that I think is harder to do on a traditional display. Olu Ajalori. You can read more about his brain connectum work and about research in caves in general in our March news feature entitled The Cave Artists. Here's a number for you. 26. That was the average age of an Olympic athlete on the American team last month in Sochi. 
Here's another number, one. That's about the average percentage of skeletal muscle mass that everyone older than 26 loses each year. This age-related loss of muscle function is known as sarcopenia. And in the elderly, this sarcopenia can be a real problem. Two independent studies in Nature Medicine now suggest a possible way to reverse the process of muscle aging and sarcopenia. In both studies, the researchers implicate a population of stem cells in the skeletal muscle that have an overly active molecular signaling pathway called P38 MAP kinase. And all this P38 activity seems to inhibit the ability of the muscle stem cells to self-renew. Fortunately for regenerative medicine, this pathway provides a target that could enable new therapies. Bradley Olwen, one of the senior study authors from the University of Colorado Boulder, explains why his group started focusing on stem cells and regeneration in the first place. It's known that as we age, we lose skeletal muscle mass. We know there are changes that occur in in muscle and metabolism, and we know that the regenerative capacity of aged muscle is not as robust as young. So we wanted to ask if there were defects in the stem cells in skeletal muscle. And what got you interested in the specific pathway, this P38 MAP kinase pathway that you've implicated in your paper? Nearly a decade ago, we discovered that this pathway was necessary for satellite cells to wake up during an injury and respond to the environment and repair the muscle. And the satellite cells, we should say, those are the the stem cells in the skeletal muscle. Those are skeletal muscle stem cells. Those muscle stem cells require P38 for their activation so that they can then go on to repair the muscle. We then subsequently discovered that asymmetric activation of this pathway is involved in asymmetric division of the muscle stem cell and is involved in its self-renewal. So it's very important for maintaining homeostasis of the muscle stem cells in muscle. So that's sort of basic developmental biology in, in the muscle stem cells, but where does the, the faulty process come in that could be contributing to aging and sarcopenia? I don't think anyone completely understands the mechanisms that are, that are involved. We and Dr. Blau's lab noted that aged muscle stem cells have elevated P38 kinase activity, which was surprising because one might think that it would function normally. But what happens when it's elevated is you can't asymmetrically activate it. And the two daughter cells from that division are more prone to commit to the muscle lineage without self-renewing. So you lose muscle stem cells and you reduce self-renewal. The elevated P38 MAP kinase activity may be due to environmental insults and aging, reactive oxygen species, enhanced inflammatory responses, that kinase pathway is involved in inflammatory responses. So it's not out of question to think that this is a cumulative effect of, of, of aging on the muscle stem cells. So if this pathway is upregulated and leads to the loss of that normal, healthy, asymmetric division, what about knocking down the levels? That's exactly what both of our labs, uh, both Dr. Blau's lab and my lab found, is that by reducing the activity of that MAP kinase pathway, but not eliminating it, 
we were able to restore the self-renewal of the cells. And our manuscript investigates predominantly the mechanisms that are involved. And Dr. Blau's paper has elegant results demonstrating that these cells are able to continue to self-renew for very long periods of time doing serial transplants. The Dr. Blau mentioned there by Bradley Owen is Helen Blau. She's a stem cell biologist at Stanford University and the senior author of the other paper published in Nature Medicine on the topic. In both Bradley Owen's paper and in Helen Blau's paper, the researchers used small molecule drugs to knock down the P38 MAP kinase levels and thereby restore self-renewal of the stem cells in a lab dish. But Blau's paper took this work one step further. She and her collaborators also grew the stem cells in a hydrogel system that stimulates the physical properties of those found inside true muscle tissue. This helps keep the stem cells from prematurely differentiating, and combined with the pharmacological inhibition of P38, could form the basis of a new cell therapy. Helen Blau explains. The whole approach could work as a stem cell therapy by rejuvenating the population ex vivo, outside of the body, so that you could plate cells from old on this hydrogel, treat them with the drug, and what you get is a rejuvenated population. And by that, I don't mean that you're turning the clock back that an old cell is now behaving like a young cell, but rather there's this residual population of one-third of the cells that's still functional, and what you're causing is an enhancement of that cell population. And as a result, you have an increased proportion of cells with, uh, with function. So you would boost the cells you want and then put them back in? That's right. You've rejuvenated the population by increasing the total number of functional stem cells after the treatment. And when you now transplant the cells into an injured muscle of an aged individual, you restore strength to be on a par of, uh, of young. So these cells are really functional in regenerating muscle. So it is a paradigm for an ex vivo autologous cell therapy. You can read both Helen Blau's and Bradley Owen's papers in the March issue of Nature Medicine. We end this month now with a study about vectored immunoprophylaxis, or VIP. What is vectored immunoprophylaxis? Well, it's kind of like a vaccine. By engineering a virus to generate specific antibodies against HIV, researchers in David Baltimore's lab at Caltech showed three years ago that they could protect mice against an injected HIV challenge. Now the same team is reporting in Nature Medicine that the technique also works against vaginal transmission of the virus. So it does sound a lot like a vaccine. How again is it different? I put that question to Alejandro Balas. He's the first author of the study, and he recently set up his own lab at the Reagan Institute of MGH, MIT, and Harvard. We spoke in his office in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I actually didn't think it was a, a bad thing to describe it as a vaccine, but, um, but when we were uh, in David Baltimore's lab discussing how we should present the work, he didn't like the term vaccine, and I actually now agree with him. Vaccines should really be reserved for interventions in which the body is asked to make the protective response. And in our case, we're making a protective response artificially uh, using a vector. And so it's really a form of prophylaxis using an antibody uh, and that comes from a vector. And so that's why the name is vectored immunoprophylaxis. So you're creating 
immune protection but not using the body's own immune system. Exactly. So vectored immunoprophylaxis uses a, a viral vector to deliver the genes for an antibody to um, non-hematopoietic tissues, uh, which can then produce the antibody that can be secreted into the circulation and provide protection. So in a previous Nature paper, you showed that this strategy can work against HIV that's delivered intravenously through an injection. And now in this current paper in Nature Medicine, you're building on that and showing now that it can also work against a mucosal challenge of HIV. Why is that distinction important, and why do you think it deserves a whole separate paper? So, I mean, the distinction is important because most of the HIV that's being transmitted in the world is actually happening from mucosal surface to mucosal surface uh, and is not, in fact, transmitting intravenously. Um, and so that process um, has as part of it many different steps which are not present in an intravenous challenge. And so it was important for us to define that, that this approach would actually be equally effective against a more realistic challenge. And so uh, in addition to using a mucosal challenge, we're actually using strains of HIV that are much more realistic than the ones we used in our previous study. So these are strains that heterosexual couples who are having sex and HIV is being transmitted that way, they might actually be spreading between themselves through the interface of their mucosa. Exactly. One of the strains we used is a transmitted molecular founder strain, which is a genotype of HIV that is mathematically calculated, back calculated, I should say, from, uh, from the existing uh, diverse strains of HIV that are in a patient. And they're thought to represent the strain that actually initiated the infection. And so people have speculated these strains may have special properties that make them better at transmitting across mucosal surfaces. And so we wanted to know that this uh, same approach that looked so effective intravenously uh, would be equally effective against these strains intravaginally. Are you actually having male and female mice have sex here to see if the vectored immunoprophylaxis works? Uh, no. So we, we don't have the mice uh, have sex with each other. Um, we simulate that by applying the virus uh, to the vaginal vault uh, using uh, pipettes. And what do you see when you do that? So what we observed was that we could apply it uh, every week, one, you know, once a week every week, and, uh, and prevent transmission of HIV, despite the fact that we did that, you know, 20 times in a row. So now that you've shown that this strategy works against IV injections, so that could be how HIV is transmitted through drug users, sort of thinking ahead to humans, or through the sexual route through the vaginal surface, what are the next steps to, to actually bring this closer to a human application? So we actually think uh, that the next step is a, is a human trial, and it's something that we're um, starting to, to put together, actually, in collaboration with the VRC, the Vaccine Research Center uh, at the NIH. Alejandro Balas. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the March issue of the journal, including News & Views perspective articles about this paper on HIV immunoprophylaxis, those two studies on muscle stem cell aging, and the investigation into electroacupuncture and sepsis. All that and more at nature.com slash naturemedicine. As always, we'd love to know what you thought about the show. You can write to medicine at us.nature.com, or better yet, write us a short review on the iTunes store. That way we get your feedback, and you help let others know about the program. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dalkin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>